2: This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly podcast on happiness and work culture. Hi, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. First episode of the year, I thought I'd kick us off with something uh, just to, to go into a bit more depth about how we can reinvent work. So during the course of last year, there was a series of... I suppose about thirty podcasts where we learned different things about the way that work's evolving, the the way that we're reinventing work, and during the course of those things, it became clear that these uh, over the, the the last ten years we've added more and more to work, and now we're reaching a stage where sort of work feels overwhelming. So myself and a former guest of the show, Sutard, uh, put something together in October partly to promote our event, Culture 2.0, and that was the New new Work Manifesto. And we thought we'd go through that today. So, Sue's joining me today. Hello. Hello there. And uh, we're going to spend some time, I think, going through this eight-point manifesto. And uh, Firstly, Sue, so is it worth saying why we did this manifesto?
0: I mean, I guess it was kind of um, in response to a little bit of pressure and a little bit of feedback from people just saying especially to you I guess uh, what are the conclusions are you reaching any conclusions kind of what are the findings of all of this all of these chats all of these books all of this science all of this insight uh, and it's like a start for 10 a discussion point on potentially the eight things that if adopted by businesses or individuals or teams within businesses would make a disproportionate difference to some of the overall headings around stress and productivity challenges that everybody seems to be facing so it's a kind of discussion document start for 10 if you did these things or a handful of these things we believe based on what we've learned read seen and heard would make a disproportionate difference
2: yeah and and there was some feedback we'll go into some of the feedback later on I think there's some feedback saying none of this felt revolutionary and actually that was almost the deliberate intent right it was like where can you get from where we are in 2017 to where is a first step in 2018 how can we sort of make a single step so it's I don't think any of this is going to feel revolutionary. No,
0: no, I don't think it is. But I think the problem with uh, these sorts of topics, like our entire lives, is there is information overload on this topic too. So to just have... Uh, hopefully a sense of, look, these handful of things, if you changed habits or managed to introduce them into your business, we think would make the biggest difference. I think it's really helpful. Otherwise, you know, even I feel a little bit like where do I start on improving my productivity, my team's effectiveness? You know, which of these things to adopt, which to ignore? So I think, you know, it, it's kind of an edited um, sense of these things would probably help
2: yeah and so I'll give a shout out all of the stuff that you're going to hear today is on a specific website so it's not the, the regular website for the podcast it's a, it's on newworkmanifesto.org and so if you go there and you'll find on that website there's, there's a page for each of these changes and each of the changes you'll see there there's uh, links to TED Talks there's links to articles there's, there's just the substance of what we're saying so any of these things, feel free to to go to newworkmanifesto.org and see all the details there. So let's dive into the first one. The the first one we we put on there was presumed Permission, and it sort of set the tone, really. That came from, uh, largely that came from this idea, during uh, one of my previous podcasts, we had uh, Cali Ressler from the results-only work environment, and... um, or Jodie Thompson, I think, from the, the Results Only Work Environment, and they were saying that one of the challenges of work right now is that if people have got clear goals that they're meant to work to and, and clear objectives they're meant to accomplish, often the best way to allow them to do that, to give them the autonomy to do that, is just give them permission to do it in any way they want. And someone at my work said to me, um, uh, t- said to me sort of in October, November, they said, I'm not sure what I'm allowed to do. Mm. I'm not sure what I'm allowed to do. And I think that's the reason why we put presume permission at the start, because it's this idea that, look, unless someone's told you otherwise, feel free to adapt your working methodology.
0: Totally. It's like, for me, it's like the cultural underpinning of the rest of it. If you can't be in a position where you can ask to be trusted and to make some of your own decisions, um, then you're not going to be able to do the rest of it. So you kind of have to assume you've got permission. And it also came from, I think, the Dan Pink you know autonomy Mm. uh, principle which you know still for me in terms of the podcast that you did this year stands the test of time in terms of those um, principles and for me it is probably the most important one if I was ordering his principles I'd say autonomy comes first because mastery and these other ones kind of you know you have to have autonomy before you can sort of get on with the rest of it so for me it's totally about an environment of trust and you know responsibility and knowing that you if you're gonna take more you've got to give more and all that stuff that you know lots of bosses get nervous about kind of allowing people to create their own environments and set their own goals. But all the science says if you create that sort of environment for people, they will do more. They will they will rise to the occasion. Um so that's why I think it's so important as a sort of cultural underpinning for the rest of it.
2: Yeah the thing that really stuck in my mind when we're when I was talking to the, the results only work environment team is that they said that anytime they went into an environment they had to do this thing Thing of getting sludge out and it's basically those those gentle almost so often well intentioned but passive aggressive comments like where have you been you know yeah. half day yeah. you know home time already is it and so those those gentle things and they call that sludge yeah. and they say getting sludge out of the working environment was one of the biggest things because I think quite often we all find ourselves in a situation where you've been up late working you've been doing something you're getting into work in the morning and you might be running late and you just Already anticipating the comments that people are going to make.
0: Yeah, yeah, a very slight sense of panic that you know you're going to have to explain why you're in nine twenty rather than five two nine. When, you know, and, and, and kind of, you know, or worse, send the email the night before, which we all know is really damaging culturally as a kind of lead from a leadership point of view to justify why you might not be in it, you know, half past eight in yeah. your normal time. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think it is, it's really important to get rid of that sludge.
2: So, so the, I guess, like you say, the presumed permission part was this foundation, this sort of cornerstone we laid down. Probably the next part is the part that's worth a discussion and debate. And that was the idea that 40 hours is enough.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, I mean, this this comes from lots and lots of really hard evidence. Um, so there's loads of evidence, including some from a guy called Daniel Levitin, who wrote a book a couple of years ago now called The Organized Mind, um, where he, he gathered all the neuroscience and all the information about how the brain works. How cortisol is released when we switch tasks, how dopamine affects anxiety and exhaustion, etc. And basically said, it's it's definitely enough to kind of work forty hours a week. That was his absolute max. And I've seen loads of research since that actually says we're we're pretty much only effective, highly productive for about two hours fifty three minutes a day. So I, it kind of it, it resonates with me because it it's also related to the point that Carl Newport made in the podcast he did with you yeah. around deep work. Uh, And lots and lots of work that's been done in Australia, in the US and in the UK. I've seen some in Sweden as well that says pretty much there's about three hours a day where we're very productive. And assuming you've got some other work around the edges that's not core primary activity, i.e. email meetings and stuff that's just kind of, you know, uh, team engagement work that six hours is actually plenty so there's there's quite a big contingent in the Nordics I think I've seen loads of research out of Sweden that says six hours is a, is a really good working day and it has a, a marked impact on reduced stress reduced anxiety and productivity uh, and they've done they've done work in Sweden I think both in uh, white collar and office environments and knowledge economy environments but they've also done loads in kind of blue collar they've done loads in care homes and loads with nurses where again they've just shown that both Kind of, you know, in a slightly more um, physical environment and an entirely mental or creative environment, <laughs> six hours is absolutely plenty. So, yeah. 40 hours was our cap, I think, on this, based on what, you know, the neuroscience says. But, you know, I, I'd advocate less personally.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the thing I saw was that the capacity of the human mind. So, so Daniel Leviton says specifically in his book, he says something like human attention is a finite resource, right? Yeah. That, you know, there's a capacity to it. Yeah. And I think what I saw was the maximum the human mind can accomplish is 55 hours but the gap between 55 hours and 50 hours is so small you'd be crazy to, to do that incremental um that incremental amount and i guess you'd say well like a time to do 50 or 55 hours might be when you're cramming for exams when you're on yeah. a deadline when you're really desperate but if you're pushing yourself and you you're going flat out at the capacity of your mind all the time yeah the thing that gets crowded out is creativity and there was some brilliant thing in in alex uh Sujong Kimpong's kim pong's book that uh rest that he wrote he looked at these people who were doing an exercise I think he was referring to someone else's work he looked at people doing exercise and they gave the exercise to to multiple groups of people and they gave it first to, to people who were going to follow one uh, pursuit of the exercise by another Repetition of it. Then they gave another group who were given the exercise, then a rest period, then the exercise, and then they were given uh, they they gave it um, the exercise, then a period of sort of like low level distracted entertainment, then the exercise, and those were the people who did best on the creative exercises. Yeah, largely because we tend to do best when we've got like downtime, Mm. we're just doing other things. You know, Mm. my best ideas come when I'm running. Yeah, just when you're doing other things, that's when the creativity comes. And this idea that, you know, there was this tweet from Nathan Hubbard before Christmas. Oh, I saw it. Right, Okay. Which was the idea, I think I'll read it, but the the idea that he said that, you know, effectively the gap between Christmas and New Year.
0: Was a massive opportunity to work harder.
2: Yeah. And I I think, I mean, I'll I'll sort of, I'll give it here. He he basically said, Nathan Hubbard said, whatever you're hustling for, take note. Most people, companies, they shut down. Uh, until 2018 that means you get two extra weeks to outwork your competition that's 3.8% more time for perspective Usain Bolt won his gold medals running 1.2% faster these two weeks are a gift but it definitely got a response oh
0: man yeah I mean if, if anyone wants to look back at that thread it's actually really interesting because I thought really pleasingly most of the responses to that were for God's sake have a rest go see your kids there's no science to this whatsoever and actually you know promoting that sort of machismo overworking is unhealthy for not just you know individuals but for the economy as a whole so i thought the responses to it were really interesting including i think sydney Gallup just said oh fuck that
2: (laughs) worth worth disclosure i do know nathan and uh he's a good guy and, and and he's i think he's working on a startup right now so i can understand that the place he's currently at that it's probably sort of a good opportunity for them to try and get that going but yeah um i think you know there was a response from buffer saying that look we're closed down and we've yeah. tried to work people for me as well that period we've we've passed it now but that period between christmas and new year there's no, there's almost
0: it's the only time everyone's off that's right yeah.
2: yeah. I heard a brilliant thing when we had um, when I had Ben Waberin from Humanize and he had this thing you know like American companies normally have 2 weeks vacation and maybe a little bit more yeah. and they have a scheme where which I thought was brilliant for both both sides let me explain which was you get half price vacation if you take it in 2 weeks in August. So so specifically if you want that that 2 week period off in August you can get it off with 1 week's holiday leave. Wow. And the idea behind it is that basically everyone needs a break if everyone's off at the same time actually re-energizes the company mm. that that sort of constant thing where you've no one's obtainable through july and, and august actually damages the company to some extent anyway so he said look hopefully up to you but if you take your vacation then we'll give you your half price and he said the benefit is he stays at work at those times and reads books Wow. He said, because when otherwise you get time to read books, but all your meetings disappear, all the sort of the, the reflective time that we never get time for, he uses it then. And I, I thought think- that, that's a brilliant idea. It's yeah, far fantastic. better than the machismo of, of yeah. cancelling Christmas.
0: Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, I think we're only just... Uh, beginning to really get a head around the fact that your brain needs a rest, which which sounds really obvious. And, you know, we've known about anxiety and stress for a long time. But I think in a business capacity, I think we're only at the edges of realising that, you know, there are signs of tiredness. And therefore, you know, being less effective, particularly around creativity and ideas and sort of deep work that, you know, um, we we completely understand from a physical point of view. um, And we're only just getting our head around, you know, if you've done three hours of really concentrated work um but you've also then had five hours of kind of task switching an activity that we know just makes the brain tired because you you know you're you're running out of chemicals you're over producing cortisol and you're tired then you know a sleep and b time away whether it's the whole weekend you know we, we included the digital sabbath in our manifesto which i think is really key uh or the two weeks at christmas or any of those kind of opportunities to genuinely switch away from that 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 work and do something else that often as you know all the evidence suggests leads to great ideas generation as you said when you're yeah. running when you're cycling when you're doing something completely different when you're reading a book uh, we're, we're only just beginning to get our heads around how massively important that is and how much of a competitive advantage it is actually yeah. to have a culture that runs like that and how much of a disadvantage it is to um run on empty constantly if you're encouraging 50 60 hours a week
2: yeah we've just got the wrong icon haven't we in, in alex um, Soo Jung Kim's *Pong's Buck*. He talks about Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens wrote thirteen novels, two hundred short stories, edited a weekly magazine, mm. and didn't work afternoons. Yeah. And like you know, he, he basically he filled his day with walks, with with reflection. In fact, he also mentions this book. Um, Professor Crick and the the founders of DNA most of their discussions and ideas were in the pubs of Cambridge Yeah, so they'd do their work then sort of go and debate and reflect in these days (laughs) yeah Good. Yeah, well, you mentioned the digital Sabbath one there. So so that was another, which I think probably is on the same lines.
0: Totally, totally. I mean, you know, again, I think even going back five years, I was probably a bit more guilty. And I think, you know, there was definitely more of a culture of people emailing at the weekends and, you know, sending stuff. But we now completely understand how much panic and fear, I think, for a number of employees that sets off. Um, so, I mean, it's totally related, again, to the 40 hours enough and, and having rest and proper escape from things. Um, it's, the science is the same, but I guess it's a much more regular thing. So, I mean, you're kind of saying every five days, let people have, you know, at least 36 or 48 hours without an email, without having to re-engage in work. It's the, it doesn't matter if they don't do anything about it, they're already in. As soon as that ping comes, as soon as you engage, your boss has sent you an email at the weekend, it's Sunday morning, they think they're just getting off your list. You're in, you, you're, your mind is alert and you are aware of the fact there is a request for you to do something, even if it says at the top of the email, which it often does, don't read this till Monday Well, hmm. don't send it till Monday. Yeah. You know, I think the new strategy for loads of people that I know who, who, who like occasionally on their downtime, maybe on a Sunday at four o'clock, doing a little bit of work, is just save them. That's what just I do. Just draft That's them. You know, I sometimes work on a Sunday when I've got an hour and a half, because I think if you've got kids and you've got hobbies at the weekend, you often just think, well, they're not here for an hour and a half. I'll just, I'll clear something. Just save it in your drafts. Yeah. It's a and, really simple tactic.
2: And, and normally, so, you know, I think all of these changes need to come from bosses, right? So, yeah. you know, the, you, can't, you can't have team members saying that they're not going to do it no uh e- weekend emails and then the boss weekend emails yeah. so you it, immediately these things have to come from the top or from the the layers of the top and normally when you go and chat to bosses and you ask them about why they sent it they said oh yeah yeah i didn't want anyone to read it just then i was just clearing emails yeah. and i think you know unfortunately because emails so binary and actually so simply constructed. It doesn't have any nuance to it. That It has to be, the the onus has to be on the sender, not the, uh, the recipient.
0: Totally. I mean, it fits into the same camp for me as most sort of leadership challenges, which are, I think most leaders underestimate their impact, both negatively and positively. So I think most people who've got jobs where they've got teams and people, whether it's a whole company or a team of 20, underestimate. It's that old thing of, I remember someone telling me when I first got a job in management, when you walk in in the morning, how your face looks, your energy has a massive bearing on the kind of, that first five minutes has a massive bearing on the rest of the morning. And I remember thinking, that's, that seems crazy. Surely I'm not that impactful. Um, but I think it's the same principle. I think, and I remember thinking it's sort of the same thing. Your behaviour, however small and however kind of unintentional it is in terms of consequences, I think has just this ripple effect yeah. that's really disproportionate. I think realising that quite early in your career, even if you're only managing a small team and knowing that your email, even if it's just your you clearing out for an hour has this disproportionate effect culturally I think it's really important and I think you know as, as soon as you get into management you need to understand that and yeah. just kind of think consciously uh, about the things that might cause a I guess a cultural ripple in the wrong direction which is I guess is what we're saying about you know emails and texts on a Sunday.
2: Yeah that's it and I just think you know every it's got to fall to everyone to challenge their bosses not to press send on that email at the weekend because there probably are times, there probably are emergencies when communicating with people at the weekend is necessary, yeah, but that 's not fifty weeks a year no. and so we're ensuring that people stop sending that email and I have to say from personal experience, people think you 're the the offender, the aggressor when you challenge them on sending it, so it has to be a norm where everyone 's challenging the people sending those those emails. You know, and and saying, please don't do that, it's it's not acceptable.
0: Yeah, totally. I'm trying to think in my career of the number of times on a Sunday there's been an emergency. I mean, literally, what, once? Yeah.
2: (laughs) So, the next thing in the manifesto is reclaim your lunch and... This is the one that probably most of us have fallen foul of. But actually, it, the continental comparison is, is worthwhile. Because if you if you tell an Italian or a French person that they need to take a lunch break, they'll pause and look at you and wonder what you mean, because they, they already benefit from having a lunch break. Totally. And they spend time with each other. I spoke to some people at the, uh, the BBC, actually, and they said... They said to me that the Brits all sit and they have lunch al desco, as we're we're now inclined to do. Mm. And uh, all of the different people from the World Service and different nationalities were all sitting and often sort of gathering around their Tupperware pots and eating together. So it does seem a uniquely British stroke American thing to to not have a lunch break. But the, the power of lunch breaks, I think... To, to sort of finish the theme of renewal and energy energy management one of the most important things we can do
0: totally totally, you know so it's it 's the twenty minute walk, the bit of fresh air, just the physical move away from the place where you associate with work, which is people 's deaths so i mean it's a it 's a really simple one to do, but um, when I look around offices that I go into, I would say. of people probably in in London that when I go into offices are are staying at the desks on Mm. I'd say three plus lunches a week um you know so it takes it's quite a big habit to break actually so i think it sort of requires um especially if you work flexible hours in any way i think there's an inclination to think that when you're actually physically in the office you need to demonstrate and uh be on it uh as much as you can for those six seven eight nine hours um but again all the research says that even half an hour away even a kind of you know half an hour different task uh away from a screen particularly um, you know is massively energising in terms of you know connecting back in in the afternoon so Yeah,
2: I, we, we had the, the um, Laura Archer was on who'd written that book which was uh, which gone for lunch and she said she'd initially set herself this goal of having a lunch break through the year and in fact ended up saying she was just going to at least insist on one or two a, a week and I think probably you know in the spirit of the manifesto saying to yourself I am definitely going to do something um, which is get away from my desk two days a week but actually do something actively go and do something one day a week and try and set yourself really small goals to just do that
0: totally i mean i've heard of loads of teams that have sort of tried to just say look it's unrealistic given you know schedules and diaries and meetings and commitments with customers and, and, and other things to do this you know three or four days a week however if we could as a team for instance, all say on a Friday or a Wednesday that we're all taking lunch and we're all going out for a walk or a visit to a gallery for 20 minutes. I mean, I heard of a team the other week that just said, someone just sent around the link and said, I saw the Prince exhibition that was on um, in town. Who fancies coming down? It's probably a, it's only 45 minute exhibition. Yeah. And they kind of all, you know, all seven in this kind of small team committed to going. I mean, that's not a biggie. Yeah. But if you can sort of just, I think, it's, you know, the m- main point is get away from the desk and have the break. But I think if you can then couple it with a little bit of, as a team do something together, then you get double bubble in terms yeah. of effect and, you know, value. So, you know, we've tried to do it. Actually, I've tried to do it with my team. We're, we're committing to kind of, you know, once a week, everybody at the same time goes goes out for lunch. And, you know, there's, there's within that a few people who have committed to, they walk on South Bank for like 40 minutes.
2: And I think all of those ones that we've covered so far, sort of um, 40 hours is enough, reclaim your lunch, the digital Sabbath, they're all respectful of the fact that rest is an active thing rather than a a completely passive thing. You know, when you're taking a break from things, generally that's the way your brain makes sense of things. You know, the the way that your thoughts are reorganised. Someone was telling me about how his dad... Um, used to come home from work and sit in a chair for an hour and no stimulation no TV it'd be borderline sort of incomprehensible now but just used to stare at the wall just organising his thoughts and probably the thing that probably the volume of thoughts is significantly higher now the volume of As to Daniel Leviton's point, the volume of distractions and attention is significantly higher. And yet yet we're not taking any time to organise what's going on in our brains.
0: Totally. Well, if you layer in, which we didn't really go into the manifesto, the issues around sleep, which, you know, is really well documented. I think, you know, Arianna Huffington and Thrive and all the signs behind sleep is also, you know, that's the ultimate rest in the day, which, you know, every single piece of evidence says... Hardly anyone can survive on four hours sleep a night in terms of as as an ongoing commitment. You know, everybody can do it once, everyone can do it twice, everyone can cram for exams, everyone can do it before a big event. But, you know, as a sustained way of kind of operating effectively. It's it's no use. Um, So, you know, the ultimate rest is, you know, take care of sleep. But I think, you know, for the other, you know, 18, 16 hours a day, you are awake. You need you need populated rests as well, um, and it's your clearly it's your brain that needs the rest. You know, it's 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 overloaded.
2: Pubs, yeah, we all love the pub. I'm doing an episode on pubs and work culture. In Britain, for a long time, many of us saw going to the pub as an important part of our jobs, important part of the culture that we built up, and having a laugh at work meant going to the pub afterwards. We always hear about work hard, play hard. It was an unspoken aspect of many jobs. But over the last few years, there's been a recognition that maybe pubs excluded certain people, favoured others. What can we do to replace the good things that pubs might have added to work but do it in a more inclusive way. I'm doing an episode on this in the next few weeks and I want to hear from you. Email me, podcast at eatsleepworkrepeat.fm or link in to me, Bruce Daisley. I just want to hear your opinions, good or bad, how pubs have affected your work culture. So we're sort of halfway through the manifesto. Um, the, the the next few are rather different. So the the next one up is "Give us room, give us some room." And and the idea behind that really was a reflection that most of us find ourselves in open plan offices, where the the struggle. Already, of the volume of demands upon us is at record levels, but then in addition, we're con- we're constantly distracted and constantly given demands, and I guess this reflects the um, the the presumed permission one because. Often the way that people are going to survive in an open plan environment is going to be given permission to go and sit in the coffee shop across the road yeah. or occasionally work from home for an hour and a half. Yeah. You know, Cal Newport talks about this monk mode morning, the idea that maybe twice a week you have 90 minutes at home before you get anything done. Yeah. And trying to permit people to, to thrive in an open planning office, that was the idea of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, this is this is about removing distractions and enable having enough mental and physical capacity to think deeply or to do concentrated work, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Um, so, you know, loads and loads have been written about, you know, the challenge of open plan offices. The businesses and the and the environments that seem to get it right have a combination and seem to know that culturally it's important to have banter and chat amongst teams and opportunities to do that where you're all physically in, but that you really do need physical spaces. Whether it's your commute, whether it's as you say, working from home. Home, or whether it's pods and breakouts that, you know, enable you for a good, you know, hour and a half, two hours to have uninterrupted time. And that in that two hours, and if you go back to the research I talked about earlier that says in the UK, we're pretty much at maximum efficiency for two hours, 53 minutes a day. Then, you know, if you carve that time out, you know, a couple of mornings, a, a, you know, a couple of mornings a week um, in a really concentrated way away from, your, away from the open plan office, then you kind of, you know, you've, you've had a great day you've had a great day and then you, your other 5 hours can be committed to some of the kind of what we call non-primary activity you know clearing your emails making sure you're at, you know at the right meetings at the right places and interacting with people but you know that 2 hours 53 minutes or like you say 90 minutes where you can just do deep work uh, it's immensely satisfying and we know as human beings our brains as mammals work really well for that length of time and then they need a break
2: yeah I saw, I saw two brilliant things about um, – there was something in the press just before Christmas talking about the new Apple building. And at the moment, they describe it as in beta, beta, yeah. and of course they do. So uh, so they say they're not going to comment on any of the things. But they say that a lot of their engineers, a lot of their programme, their, um, their designers have complained that the new open plan floors that they're in are not productive for getting work done. And there was also an article in November about the Nuffield – Institute yep, down yep. by, St. yeah. Yep. Which is a beautiful building, mm. but it's got an open plan floor plate of uh, three thousand people, and they say the noise is so overwhelming. Yeah. people feel like they're getting nothing done. Yeah,
0: and if you think about that, I mean, you know, the assumption being that you know scientists or engineers or people who have those slightly more academic jobs are the people who need quiet time. But but everybody needs quiet time. Everybody needs uninterrupted time. Doesn't matter what task you're on. But you know, particularly you know, creative tasks, just thinking tasks. Everybody needs it. So I think you know the the Nuffield is a shame because I mean architecturally it's beautiful but I'm I'm sure they'll find a solution to it but you know 3,000 scientists are at the cutting edge of trying to solve world illnesses and problems you know Claim that they can't work in open plan offices. And then, you know, that the same is true for all of us. And I yeah. think it's a great example of just kind of, you know, accepting that everybody needs spaces where they can work uninterrupted for concentrated periods of time.
2: I wonder how it's going to evolve, you know. So I, I, I'd love to chat with Bjarke Ingalls and him talking about how teams would self-organise and build their own walls between yeah. things. yeah. That's definitely possible when you've got the, the second biggest, third biggest company in the world, but probably not possible for most of us. And I wonder if there will be a return. For me, like the perfect team size is always around 30. And, mm. and I wonder if there will be the opportunities for other teams to reorganize.
0: I don't think it's that hard to th- to. to- to think about um really effective breakout pod spaces in open plan offices i mean the offices that seem to do it really well just seem to completely understand that you need multiple spaces that can be booked for you know periods of time where one person can go in they're not meeting rooms i think that's the difference that i've seen in offices lately instead of there being you know breakout meeting rooms that assume if you're not at your desk then all you need to do is be in a meeting well i think there's now a, a Acknowledgement that no, the third space in most offices that's most needed is a single pod space, right, yeah. so that lots of people can go and be completely quiet for ninety minutes uh, and not be in a meeting. And I think even three, four years ago, there wasn't there weren't that many offices that accommodated the need for just quiet pod spaces. Yeah. I mean, I remember the first time I walked into one in London. I think it was in an ad agency, and I remember thinking, you know, it's probably five years ago. I remember thinking they looked like a telephone box. You know, like an old kind of place you'd go and make a private call. And maybe that's what their intention was. Maybe they thought well, actually people need private calls occasionally but now you can see people in there working for you know an hour and a half where they clearly just think you know i'll I'll be back to my desk later and that and i'll be fine to do my kind of non-primary activity on my emails in the open plan office and then i'll go into meeting rooms where i interact with other people but for this 90 minutes or two hours a day i've got to get this report or this idea or this pitch or this document you know developed and i can't do that in either of those other two spaces it's where i
2: feel like the tools given to people to work aren't yet at pace with the the needs that people have got. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, you should have the ability within your email to send emails very easily that will only send on Sunday and in addition you should have the, e- the ability with your email to pause it all for, 40, for 45 minutes 90 minutes so you can get stuff done because yeah. the the distraction that we've all got the distractibility that we've all got sometimes is the downfall isn't it
0: but, but that's because I mean essentially that's because all the software and the technology is fighting for our attention mm. back to Daniel Leviton's point about attention being finite and kind of it's, it's the scarce resource that we have to self-manage everything defaults to kind of have your attention doesn't it so the office environment defaults to can I have your attention from colleagues and from people across the other end of the uh, office or from people sitting opposite you? All your phone, your your laptop, everything—all the defaults are pop-ups and notifications to say, look at me. So I think you have to override all those defaults, both in terms of your own habits, but also the technology and set them all to the opposite. So, I mean, there's loads of those tips, isn't there? I've read about loads of them where people just say, take all notifications off, take the number of incoming email numbers off your email inbox, make sure there's no pop-ups happening when you're actually working because best one in the world, even if you move yourself physically to a pod to concentrate for an hour and a half with your laptop, if your email pop-ups and notifications come up every day, two and a half seconds then you know you're still not concentrating the pod space hasn't helped it's the mental space you need from no distractions so I think you have to set all your defaults which is slightly irritating because then when you get away from work and you do want to see your notifications, you have to set them all back again. So I think you're right. The technology hasn't kind of enabled us to kind of set them in a way that says, I'm all right for being interrupted for this six hours a day, but for this four hours a day, I don't want to be. So please, can I set all my, you know, social media feeds, my email feeds, everything to this pattern and I'll change them at the weekends maybe. But, but you, you have to make a concerted effort yeah. to, to do it. And I think you have to be really active in uh, overriding the defaults, which I think is why it's hard.
2: I think that's it. The, any change from my experience, any change where you've got to do a lot of customization, people won't use. But if you could simply have a pause button yeah. or a you know, you know, a sort of a hold till Monday button, yeah. then I think those things just very simple one or two controls yeah. would just have a big impact on on I how we are. That's an idea work. there, Bruce. <laughs> yeah. The the thing is when I when I present the um occasionally people ask me to come and sort of present on uh, what I've learned in the time I've been doing the podcast and the the number one thing I always say to them is the number one way to improve your own, reduce your own stress levels, to make yourself happier at work, is to turn notifications off your phone. Because the research on that was, I think when they were trying to do it, the guy who was researching it couldn't get a big enough group who would commit to turn their notifications off for a week. So he asked them to turn it off for a day. And he said two years later, 50% of the research group was still exhibiting the pattern of having their notifications turned off. Because it it was making such an impact on their own stress levels, on their attention levels, yeah. on, their, on their levels of happiness, really.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, essentially, we all know that what's happening is there's a light going on in your brain, back to Daniel Levitin and his kind of neuroscience, that says, if at the corner of your eye, the, the notification pops up on your phone and it's an email and you can see who it's from and it's somebody important, then, you know, it's very difficult. I mean, A, you've, 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 you've done the task switch thing. You know, you've kind of you've moved out what you were thinking about into into glancing at that for a split second, which means, you know, according to Daniel, that's a kind of that's a cortisol switch. That's the cortisol in your brain as you multitask, switching, switching and, and increasing, which is tiring. You know, everybody kind of understands the science of, you know, stress is is tiring because you're depleting cortisol, which is the stress hormone. So all those switches. So just having them off and having less i mean i don't know if there's i haven't seen the research that says how many switches we make in a day um but it it will be colossal um if you don't manage those kind of digital interruptions i think Mm. um so i'm sure there's probably some evidence somewhere i'm gonna go and look for actually that says if you just get kind of you know 30 percent less switching happening what's the effect in terms of um you know reduced cortisone reduce stress so, yeah um, I'm, I'm sure it's quite hard and I, I think you
2: get more done it's why Cal Newport says he plans every minute of the day yeah because if you know specifically I'm going to be working on this for an hour then those things that just sit on your to-do list for three months and then when you, when you go to do them, they take one hour of work. And you're just like, why have I been sitting there yeah. procrastinating on doing that? It was just an hour of concentrated work. And the, the reason why you didn't is because an hour of concentrated work is such a scarcity now. Yeah. We don't really have time for it.
0: Yeah, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Cal, but it was, somebody in one of your podcasts also said, you know, the kind of thing about, you know, do the most important thing first. Yeah. Do the, the one thing that has to happen that day yeah, that's crucial, dumping, yeah. um, that's the thing to do. And, yeah. and it sounds like really obvious time management again, but it's really easy for the, most, the first thing that you do when you get to work to either be a meeting, because I think most people by, you know, nine, half nine have probably got a meeting in a day, um, or, you know, straight into checking your yeah. emails from yesterday. If you, do, if you manage to not look at them the night before, And you did manage to leave the office at six o'clock and you've managed to go a whole flipping, you know, 12 hours without looking at them. Then probably the first thing you're going to do when you get in, if you're not straight into a meeting, is check all your emails for a good 45 minutes. We'll just leave that, you know, make that the four to five slot and make the first 90 minutes the kind of most important, most um, creative, most demanding and kind of best use of you, I guess. Um, Because everybody knows that checking emails and meetings is probably not the best use of anyone's time.
2: OK, so we've got three more to go on the manifesto. And you can find all of the, the New Work Manifesto at newworkmanifesto.org. And these these probably the three of them that I enjoy the most, actually, and the, the things I'm sort of uh, are most inspired by us including. So, so let's do uh, the next one, which has got to be me. And this is... I think the danger of anything that feels voguish is that it's easy for then someone to dismiss. But there's a large amount of discussion now about bringing your real self to work, your whole self to work. Dan Cable talked at great length about some research that he'd done into this. And I think it's built on the Gallup survey, which the the Gallup workforce survey said that 78% of British workers feel like they go to work to shut off. So like yeah. this thing that you're not being your real self. And as all of us, to, to a larger extent than we probably acknowledge, do creative work where our ideas and our input are welcomed. Going to work to shut off and probably then therefore not really saying what you really feel mm. is is a danger to that and a, a limitation to that.
0: Totally. I mean, I, I, I mean one of my favourite podcasts of the year was... Um was the Dan Cable one. And to be fair, shout out to his book, which I know is uh, due for release in the next kind of few weeks, Alive at Work, um, which I think, you know, I, I would recommend anyone to read, actually. Um, so for me, what was really interesting about that was this idea that, um, A, there's there's this, this you know, untapped potential in all of us if we can bring more of what we are great at and who we really are to work which you know daniel's uh, dan's science clearly says but also that if if you can create a culture where um that's possible then then the advantages are huge in terms of you know ideas generation which sounds obvious as well because he, he talked a lot about um having cultures that sometimes activate what he calls the fear system which is um, if we're all terrified and we're all worried that either on an individual level our jobs are at threat or on a macro level the competition is going to bite us and we know with disruption and how quickly things change these are these are macro factors that nearly every business faces it is it is tough out there it's competitive out there and the speed at which uh, business moves is you know is is frightening however if if you are constantly creating a sense of fear in people then the the science says that what you're doing is, you know, you release a mass cortisol release for everyone in the business if there's a fear culture. However, if you can create a culture that's more about activating the seeking system in people's brains, which is a dopamine release as opposed to cortisol release, then you're much you're going to lend yourself to um, people uh, coming, being much more confident to talk about the ideas they've got that are potentially the things that are going to move your business on. i.e., new things. So fear system, fear culture, follow the herd. You know, stay safe. Don't stick your head up. I think I think Dan says, you know, don't do tall poppy syndrome because otherwise you might get your head chopped off. Uh, if you can activate, if you can activate seeking systems in people, you can create a culture where you know that's activated in individuals, which essentially is saying be yourself. Um, then, you know, people will stand away from one another and will um, supply the ideas and the information that's a bit different that we all know is potentially the next competitive advantage that's going to help your business or generate a new idea or product that means you win. So... I mean, I thought his thinking was remarkable. And um, although I knew a little bit of that science before, he presents it in such a way in the book that um, has probably had the most profound effect on me in terms of thinking about the way I lead teams and think about business culture than any of the podcasts all year.
2: Yeah, and I thought there was a brilliant thing in his his work where he was talking about... Um, the induction process at a company called WePro, and it, they just introduced this like 15 minute exercise, which was they handed people who were new hires all sitting at tables together. And the, the exercise was reflect on the time that you were acting in the way you were born to act and when it achieved great results. So, and it, I think the, the text text is is up on the the new work manifesto website but the the text is just these very simple two sentences and the impact was amazing the one year retention of those people who'd gone through the exercise was 58% higher And the customer satisfaction of the people, so they were call centre workers, went up from 61% to 73%. So this, as Dan said, if I could show you something that would increase 12 percentage points, about 20% increase uh, in customer satisfaction, then you'd do it full stop. If I told you it was a 15 minute exercise that cost nothing, then what's stopping people doing it? And it's this strange thing that... Uh, a lot of us, even when presented with the evidence like this, we still think, yeah, yeah, we won't do that in our own businesses. So yeah. so I think the intention yeah. of saying got to be me is just inviting and encouraging people to think about how they can, they can permit those things in their workforces.
0: Yeah, totally. And I, th- I think the, the challenge culturally is I think we're sort of used to thinking that having a having a defined effective culture means a set of ground rules or values or principles about how it is to be in that environment, which I think you know there is there is definitely um truth behind, but I think the tough thing for leaders is saying there's a way we do things around here, which is your culture, but then within that enabling people to be themselves and allowing for difference and so at one level. That's, that's really obvious stuff around diversity debates, which, you know, and inclusivity debates, but and, and not just around gender and colour and sexual orientation and everything else that we, we see all the time being written about as being challenges in, in modern businesses, but actually in terms of thinking and being and what each individual can offer and bring to a business. Because the, the, the evidence, you know, Dan, you know, writes it brilliantly in the book, is overwhelming that if you can create an environment where people can bring, you know, even 70 or 80% of themselves to work, then you'll get an advantage. The
2: The last couple, um, the, the next one is the only way is ethics. And that was especially relevant. I think in 2017, where there was a series of episodes. Well, from the start of the year, the, um, was it the Susan Fowler letter was Susan Fowler, the, the person responsible for the Uber letter and, and, um, and largely was, I think, credited by a number of organisations as being the most impactful uh, protagonist in the, the course of 12 months because she brought down the chief exec of Uber. Yeah. She really, alongside the Harvey Weinstein affair, helped really a year-long um, shaming of people who've been practising really sort
0: of disreptive behaviour. Yeah, bad yeah. behaviour. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. I mean, I, I don't even think when we wrote that, actually, which I think probably was just before the summer um that we had a sense that the year would end with quite so much impact in terms of some of those individual um changes and and um sort of uh, i guess individual um championing of those causes i mean you know time magazine you know credit to them as we're all if we've all seen with you know being the sort of people of the year that group of people including susan fowler um and you know fundamentally i think in my working lifetime this is probably the biggest cultural change that we'll see um that there is certain behavior that you know questionably morally that is no longer acceptable you will be shouted out for it you will be held to account and although there will be lots and lots of people lots of businesses who still feel you know that there are people around them who perhaps you know don't behave in the most appropriate way i feel like that's a sea change um and i think it will impact on the creative industries for sure and i would imagine it will have long-standing effects um and because it it feels quite you know it's quite difficult it feels a bit morally crusading to have a manifesto item around workplace culture that says, that uses the word ethics. But I think we we used it very deliberately because I think it's, you know, all the years I've been involved in businesses where, where you know, strong cultures have been part of the business success. There's no question, there's been a clear sense of what we, most businesses call values. But um I think values started to become a bit shaky morally when people saw some of the listed values that some of the companies like Uber had because people started to question whether they were ethically in terms of individuals encouraging the right behavior. So I mean I think we you know we deliberately said ethics because I think you need to call out the fact that um essentially you're saying there's 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 some strong moral compass in our organisation and there's some behaviour that's just not acceptable and I think most people are ending the year looking back going yeah a lot of those people have been called out and those organisations from Harvey Weinstein down rightly so. So um, you know what's wrong with having a strong ethical moral code in a business?
2: Yeah and the interesting thing is I think is that in truth, I really hope the momentum of this carries on because yeah. there's a real danger that, you know, when something's in the tech industry or the entertainment industry, actually, it's not that relevant for most people's jobs. And it's only when it comes to the rail industry, when it comes to the catering industry, when it when people are getting called out in all those different places. Yeah. I was really inspired by um, uh, and Emily Reynolds and Louise Rid- Ridley, who set up, uh, amongst other people have set up the second source, which is to try and bring that to journalism. The idea being that, you know, if there's a whistleblower hotline in each industry, collectively we can have an impact on this because there is a danger otherwise. For 2018, we return to the place where the people who can afford the, afford the lawyers win the day. And ultimately, you know, the reason why Harvey Weinstein in the entertainment industry prevailed so long is he had the most expensive lawyers and he could set private investigators on people. He could disparage people and ultimately resources win. So I I really do hope that next year we don't see a a retraction of that ambition, you know, and ambition really to overturn the system. I hope it continues.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, it's been so well documented. I can't do it as justice as much as of the journalists have written about it. But essentially it's about power. But the the best thing about social media and about some of the systems that now exist is the, the power balance is a little bit um, more equal than it probably was 20 years ago. So you might not have the money for the lawyers and you might always be outgunned by, you know, a top you know, Hollywood executive or the equivalent within the rail industry. But the reality is you have got more power than you ever had in terms of, um, you know, being able to call out bad behaviour, I think. Mm. So, um, I mean, I agree. And I think it's a a profound change and I think it's a really welcome one.
2: So building businesses on ethics, you know, and and actually proudly professing that because i think the the more proudly we we have businesses standing forward saying we we judge ourselves by this moral code then there's the more opportunity for people to call them out on it if they don't live up to those those ambitions and aspirations so you know it, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be important to say businesses should be ethical but i think it's probably more visible than ever before in 2018
0: yeah totally totally
2: the final one we had down here was was to laugh And that uh, and actually a a lot of my inspiration for that was that I I presented somewhere and someone came up to me and he said he was an ex-military man. One of the um, I think one of the the core principles of the army is cheerfulness. Nick always reminds me. And uh, and um, and having he came up to me, said, yeah, these are all very well. But the most important thing at work is to laugh, and I thought, yeah, I mean, like the, yeah. the the overall ethos we had on everything here was that work's less fun than it used to be. Totally. And so, labelling the fact that there should be a time at work to laugh, yeah. was really important.
0: I think it is really important because I think you know the rest of the manifesto is about the 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 science and the things that help people uh, be more effective, more productive, less stressed, less anxious, and then cumulatively the effect that that has on a business, i.e., that they, you know they're hopefully more effective in a macro sense but the reality is that you know um most of us make most of our decisions in terms of where we spend our time by things that are actually just fun um so you know the rest of them are quite worthy and scientific and i'm sure there's some science about fun at work as well but the reality is that you know if you just ask people on a very simple anecdotal level the best places they've worked that have had success where they felt they've been part of a team or a or a whole organisation that was um, successful and their best sort of, you know, time in their working lives, they'll talk about the fact that it was a good laugh.
2: Yeah, and
0: it's... It's true for me. You know, I'm sure it's true for most people that, you know, the place where you had the most fun, either your individual colleagues around you, you know, you're just, you know, able to have fun at work.
2: Yeah, there's some brilliant stuff I read about Bear Stearns and Bear Stones was this machismo filled organisation, one of the sort of the big trading houses and their, their culture was we make nothing but money. And they celebrated the fact that they were just focused on the end goal. Um, in fact, I, I talked about it with John Kay in the Obliquity episode. And uh, they were very focused on that. And it, and <laughs> one of the downsides of that was that there was no cooperation at all between people because people felt like, well, I'm just making money for my clients and my portfolio. And so consequently, because there was no cooperation between people, no laughter, no discussion, people didn't even acknowledge each, each other in the hallways, that when they started to behave unethically, it it was like a contagion. Mm. And ultimately, the there was no collaboration, there was no cooperation, there was no laughter. The the whole organisation collapsed mm. because it just wasn't built on a spirit of teamwork and collaboration and, and effectively sort of ethical self-checking, really.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the other thing about laughter and fun at work, which sounds really obvious, is it's also um, it's kind of another form of rest, another form of time away from the serious head down business of business or what you've got to do in a day, you know, 15 minutes which, you know, might look like time wasting to some people, of actually just having some banter and some fun and making light of some stuff and laughing, you know, is probably mentally uh, as good for you as the stroll around the block. I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, that that kind of, the, the laughter and the time away from the concentrated kind of checking emails and the slight fear and stress is is probably as kind of mentally exhilarating and re-energising as any of the other tactics, actually, and any of the other ideas that are in the manifesto. you know yeah. So it's I think it's really important to have it in there.
2: Yeah. And I think it's that thing, isn't it, where, you know, over the course of the last 10, year, 15 years since everyone got email on their phones. And so consequently, emails grew exponentially because we could send an email even when we're, we're You know, on the tube, we can send emails all the time. So emails have grown and we've effectively just layered more and more on top of people. You know, there used to be a friction to putting meetings in someone's diary because you used to have to either phone them and have an awkward risk of rejection or uh, you'd have to walk over to their desk and like... In ancient times, and borrow their diary and handwrite it in there. Now you can send a meeting request to someone with the, the lack of friction of, of creating an email. But
0: that so, friction was really helpful because what that friction was about was people being able to say what's the purpose of the meeting. Yeah, which which I, I also remember uh, someone I worked for, probably again in my first or second job, who was who was who was brilliant at kind of understanding the balance between work and play and time away and distractions. Uh, a guy called Malcolm Cox who I worked for. Um, 20 odd years ago who you know I do remember even people saying about him that he had his feet up reading the trade press you know of a week and I remember thinking but if he doesn't absorb the information about what's going on in our industry as the kind of marketing director for the business you know who is going to so but he also was really good at kind of just you know the 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 time away from your head down And and I really appreciated working for him the one thing I remember Malcolm um Uh, teaching me when I when I worked for him was he was absolutely one of the most disciplined people about questioning what a meeting was for and why I needed to be there so he relentlessly used to say if you ever kind of you know walked up and said I need to put this meeting in what's the purpose of the meeting and what's my contribution what do you need from me um and actually that's really gone out of business because of you know exactly what you've just described the fact that you can just pop it in there and you know it's it would it would imagine how much time it would take although it'd probably be a great discipline to actually email back to everyone who sent a meeting request to you to say could i just be clear on what the purpose of the meeting is and what my what my role is but i mean it would be time consuming to do it but i bet you half the meetings would disappear out your diary yeah so i mean you know the the frictionless kind of um you know email into into meetings I, i think is a problem i think it's actually would be great if we could all say can i just be clear on the purpose and why you want me there it almost sounds, I can almost sense how aggressive that would seem to people to do that. But actually, it's not aggressive. It's just good yeah. your time.
2: I mean, maybe the secret is it's like something like the, the buffer. Uh policy and the, the bus, buffer sense of openness that effectively you try and get as few people as possible to meetings but you minute them and so if anyone says how was that decision made they can go and see how the decision was made so it's like yeah. trusting your colleagues but trying to reduce the burden on them because you don't need to attend to every every meeting but what tends to happen in our minds is we we have this idea that important decisions will be made when I'm not there so I need to go to all these meetings and actually allowing your teammates and people you work with to make decisions trust they're doing the right thing yeah probably is the way that we're going to reduce that burden
0: yeah i mean that's right i mean I think people go to meetings because they do think i might as well hear firsthand what it is that's expected of me because the fear is that someone isn't going to communicate effectively and you're not going to find out that you're expected to do something and three weeks later you're going to miss a deadline you know so i think people use it as a kind of you know fear management system to make sure they don't cock up you know i might as well be in there as not in there um, but, you know, I mean, I don't know. i am not working many businesses where every meeting gets minuted, but um, I'm sure I'm sure technology would allow us. I mean, there are a couple of businesses I know. I've seen a TED talk by a, a financial business who um, had a culture where they record every meeting. Um, literally videoed or audioed every single meeting, board down, and everything available for every every employee in the business to Was see. Was this and the hear. Ray Dalio thing? That's right. Right, okay. That's right. The, the, I what the book. called.
2: Uh, I, I'm not sure, it's, um, it's an investment firm, but. That's right. But, um, uh, the investment firm where they, they give people scores at the end of every meeting as well that's right that's right so
0: A, a you need to be on you know you're, you're going to get some live feedback constantly but I also know they do film or record every single meeting that happens and every employee in the business can see it or hear it which again A you just find out how, how mundane loads of meetings are actually and how they're not quite as exciting as you perceive them to be at, at senior level which I think um, would be a good thing and B it would stop people turning up to things that are actually just a waste of their time
2: so we're out of time so we, we've gone through the, the eight. Uh, Parts of the manifesto, presume permission, 40 hours is enough, reclaim your lunch, give us some room, digital Sabbath, the only way is ethics, Uh, got to be me and to laugh. Uh, We're really keen to hear your feedback, really. So you can uh, tweet us uh, if you search for at eat, sleep, work, repeat. Um, You can also download the whole manifesto, newworkmanifesto.org and you can leave comments there. So really keen, myself and Sue, um, I mean, this is neither of our day jobs, but I think what we've tried to do is treat this as sort of like a creative commons thing that anyone can own, everyone can contribute to. A guy contacted me just before Christmas saying he wanted to turn the manifesto into a poster. You know, by all means, I think I'd love to see people remixing it, changing it, adapting it. We we had some good feedback from uh, Matthew Knight before Christmas, who said his feedback was he worked at an, an agency, a London ad agency, and he said he felt that it didn't go far enough. Yeah, and I think you know that's a perfectly acceptable response. Totally, from our perspective, we'd much rather people adapted it, disagreed with it, contributed something that we've missed. Than, than, uh, than just treated this as you know. This isn't our Ed Stone. This isn't our no. eight, eight promises cast in stone.
0: No, totally. And, I mean, I think is. I think. I think it's a realization as well. I mean, I, I, I have adopted. Uh, and made more of a concerted effort on a few of those manifesto items that I thought I was personally lacking at. And I know how hard it is, how much, you know, it's the 30 days to change a habit stuff. And if you're trying to break that into your team or culture, and you're requiring them to also change, it's probably 90 days until you kind of break something. So hopefully the manifesto is a starter a 10 on some habit breaking behaviour that uh, I think if people can adopt them, um, and again, not saying they're the only things that people could do, hopefully they'll see, as you say, a disproportionate effect in terms of, um, you know, either more fun, more joy, less stress, just, you know, having a better time at work. Back to where we started, you know, it used to be more fun.
2: Thank you. Thanks for joining me, Sue, and uh, look forward to receiving your feedback. I'll see you next time.